And welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that did make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniecks. Listeners, I'm extremely excited today to welcome author Marion Deeds to the podcast. Marion, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, you came very highly recommended by friend of the show uh, and story hour host Laura Blackwell. And wonderful writer Laura Blackwell. I was very glad to uh, have her there to give me some recommendations when we had to have a slight change of plans at the last minute. Great. So uh, thank you so much for joining once again. It's my pleasure. You're going to be reading from your brand new book, Come Up and Served Cold. Is there anything we need to know going into this reading? Um, it's set. I'm actually going to hold it up and do the Vanna White thing, mainly oh, because fantastic. I got a simply gorgeous cover that I can take no credit for, but I love. So any chance I have to flash the cover, I do. It is lovely, and it will be included in the show notes. So listeners, fear not. Very good. Very good. Helena Helen Crawford White is the artist. I feel like I have to say that too. The book is set in 1929, and it's in an alternate USA set in Seattle where magic is legal and booze because of prohibition is illegal. Very cool. And we meet a number of different characters. We meet a woman who runs a speakeasy. We meet a woman who's been hired as a lady's companion. And we find out pretty quickly that really no one is quite what they seem to be. We love to hear about it. Okay, I'm going to start with chapter one and read a little bit, and then I'm going to move forward and read a little bit from chapter three and part of chapter four. Fantastic. Okay, chapter one, November 4th, 1929, 13 days before. Ambrose Earnshaw, Seattle's commissioner of Magi, looked over his wide ebony desk at the young woman seated across it. Mortimer Lester is a good friend, he said but he is not a great judge of character. I am, and I investigate thoroughly. He touched the open file folder before him. The woman nodded. Her expression was serious, but not anxious. She was pretty, with green eyes and black hair unfashionably long, tucked up bob-like under a gray cloche. Her hands were folded, but he could see where a tear in the thumb seam of one glove had been nearly perfectly mended. Her white blouse was impeccably pressed. The gray wool skirt she wore, which ended just below her knee, was not in the latest fashion. <laughs> you came here from California, and you told me you attended Miss Meritage's Young Women's Academy in San Diego, he said. My parents died when I was 10, and Uncle John was the only one who could take me in. She had a low-pitched voice. When I was 13, my aunt got sick. With the four boys, they couldn't look after me, so I went to Miss Meritage's. I have her letter here. He cleared his throat and read aloud. Miss White was a conscientious and obedient student. Even though she possesses no magical affinity, she is a careful and methodical mixer of potions. She is reliable, punctual, and tidy. If the position you are filling does not require great imagination, she will do well. I hmm. recommend her to you. If Miss White was hurt by this blunt assessment, it didn't show. 
You cared for Mortimer's great-aunt in Tarzana until she crossed over. Yes, Miss White shifted her hands. I came to Seattle looking for work. Mr. Lester told me you might have a position. I do, he said. He glanced around the room, stroking his mustache with thumb and forefinger. His study always filled him with satisfaction, from the teak wainscoting to the marquetry ceiling carved of bird's eye maple. The rich Persian rugs, chosen by his wife, now five years dead, ran up to the French doors, their thin drapes drawn back to show a view of the flagstone terrace and the autumn garden. I've done a bit of research about you too, Mr. Earnshaw, Dolly White said. I understand you are the commissioner of Magi, and your eldest child, Francis, is in the order of St. Michael the Protector, which I assume is a magical police force, or part of your commission? I don't completely understand. The order is less formal. Our police force is filled with short-sighted fools, too timorous to take the necessary action. There's a need for a volunteer force to pick up the slack. A puzzled frown wrinkled her forehead. A vigilance committee? That's an old-fashioned term, Miss White. The Order of St. Michael merely protects the populace where the police cannot. He shot his cuffs. As for the commission, it's a, well, a governing council. We recommend policy on magic to the mayor and the city council, and we investigate complaints. We're responsible for the licensing of magical practitioners and the collecting of fees. We didn't have those in California, I think, she said. California is a hotbed of magical crime. <laughs> a silence fell. Well, Dolly said, I admit I'm confused. You wanted a companion for your daughter, but I've seen her picture in the society pages, and she isn't an invalid, is she? My daughter is a drunkard. Dolly White raised her eyebrows. Fiona is about to be engaged to Antonio Arbilio, the scion of a fine magical family. But she, lately, in the past six months, she has been frequenting a vile criminal enterprise, a speakeasy run by a loathsome woman named Violet Solomon. Fiona's behavior grows wilder and more outrageous each day. He cleared his throat. We haven't even had the engagement party yet. I've thought of moving up the wedding date, but... Oh, no, you mustn't. Dolly shook her head. That leaves both families open to the worst kinds of gossip. <laughs> I see you understand. She's gotten wilder and wilder. Last week, she drove her car into a light pole. As if I didn't have enough on my mind last week, what with... Well, something must be done. The trouble, the drinking, is even worse, because I believe the gin is spiked with shimmer shim. That terrible stuff should be outlawed. <laughs> the herb shimmer has a valid use, Mr. Earnshaw, as a pain reliever. He stared and then smiled a bit sourly. I forgot you were a scholar of potions. Well, once Fiona is safely married, there might be a place for you on the commission staff, unless Fiona wants to keep you on. If you can keep her away from the precipice until... The doors opened and his troublesome daughter reeled into the room, wrapped in a pink silk dressing gown. Fluffy pink feathered mules covered her feet. Are you interviewing my new jailer, Daddy? Don't be flippant. Miss White, my daughter Fiona. Ignoring Dolly's outstretched hand, Fiona staggered over to the other chair and fell into it. The diffuse afternoon light from the French doors bleached her wavy blonde bob to the color of a dandelion crown. <laughs> I hope he's going to pay you plenty, Miss White, she said. She yawned. You'll need it. Lord, I'm tired. How can you be tired? It's two in the afternoon. You slept through breakfast and lunch. Dolly leaned forward, staring into the girl's face. 
You're under the influence of Shimmer Shim right now. Good Lord, Earnshaw said. Fiona smiled and closed her eyes. Gin and Shim, my favorite. I can help with this, Dolly said. We'll try an infusion of Payne's touch. Earnshaw tugged the bell pull once. As Fiona struggled to her feet, a young maid came into the room. Inez, get Miss White what she needs. Hot water in a teapot with honey, please, Dolly said, and we'll take it in the drawing room. I hate tea, Fiona said, and I hate the drawing room. <laughs> Too bad for you then, Dolly said, taking the girl's arm. They crossed the marble foyer into the drawing room. Ambrose Earnshaw waited until they left the room. He opened a small wooden box on his desk. Inside, a green jewel nestled into a nest of gold wire. He touched the stone and prepared to listen. The room's pale silk drapes had been drawn open, giving Dolly a view of the mansion's garden. Fiona winced and covered her eyes. Mm-hmm. The maid carried in a tray. Dolly poured a cup of water, added a dollop of golden honey, and dropped in a Payne's touch sachet from her bag. Are you poisoning me? Fiona's pupils were the pinpricks of someone doped up on Shim. Surely Daddy wouldn't have spent a week checking the bona fides of a poisoner when he could hire one in an hour. (laughs) Dolly thought the girl had swallowed a shot of Shim within the last hour. Plainly, she had the stuff in the house. You think this behavior embarrasses your father, she said, but it just strengthens his position. She handed Fiona the cup. Here, blow on this. It's hot. Aren't you bold behind Daddy's back, Fiona said. The cup rattled slightly on its saucer. I'd say it to his face, said Dolly. Now drink it. Grumbling, Fiona drank the tea. She set the cup on the tray and dropped back into the chair. He's impressed you, hasn't he? Seattle's white king of magic. He seems to care about you. She shook her head. You don't know anything about my fam. She sat up. An expression of surprise crossed her face. I... I feel awake. Dolly nodded, and you can continue to feel awake, and better, as long as you avoid alcohol and shimmer shim. It'll take about three days for Payne's touch to drive the shim out of your system. Fiona pouted. What if I don't want it out of my system? Ask me that question again in four days. Fiona laughed. Aren't you clever? I'm hungry. Let's go to the kitchen and get Mrs. Chambers to make us something to eat. Hmm. Now, this is a little farther along, and Dolly and Fiona have gotten to know each other better, and Dolly has learned about Fiona's secret love. Ooh. And they, yes, ooh, and they, the two of them are on their way to plan an engagement party. The white and gold Phaeton's long nose and sweeping running boards gave an impression of aggressive power, its smooth ride belied. Fiona and Dolly lounged against the soft leather seats. The glass vase mounted on the back of the front seat held a small white hothouse rose. They were on their way to the Olympic, the most modern hotel in the city. Should your fiancé have a say in the planning, Dolly said. Fiona shrugged. He'll be fine with whatever I choose. (laughs) You, Dolly glanced at Nick, the chauffeur. Do you care for him? I do. We're friends. We just don't love each other. Think of us as the children of two royal families, cementing a political alliance. That's medieval, said Dolly. That's Seattle, Fiona said, at least for magical families. Dolly believes strongly that we must marry and produce children so the affinities are not lost. And the Arbelios, they're magical? Oh, yes. Tony's magical, and I have the bloodline. We'll make a respectable couple. (laughs) She sighed and looked out the window. 
Dolly said quietly, but there's Rob. There used to be. Well, that's just heartbreaking. Fiona laughed and shook her head, but it was an unconvincing laugh. So you sought out Jin and Shim. Fiona plucked the rosebud out of the vase and began to twirl it. Isn't this pathetic? We aren't here to talk about my broken heart, Dolly. We're planning a party. They drove for half a block. A sedan passed them. Fiona turned her head, following it, and then faced forward. She twirled the rosebud again. Another block along, Dolly leaned forward. A group of people, in two lines, marched up Fifth Avenue toward the hotel. She counted eight men and two women bringing up the rear. The women held signs, but she couldn't read them. What is that? Oh, those are happening all over, the chauffeur said. What are they saying? Fiona rolled down her window. Dolly could read some of the signs now. Save our children. No more wolves. The chanting, or singing, reached them. No more wolves. No more wolves. No more wolves in our hometown. You haven't heard that song, Miss Fiona? It's all over the place. The marchers fell away behind them. Dolly said, Something tells me you know every bit of that song. <laughs> Nick glanced up in the rear view and gave a slight shrug. I may know a verse or two. He began to sing in a smooth baritone. We're taking out the shapeshifters, everyone we see, with nets of magic silver and a spear of lazuli. We're cleaning out the dirty wolves and every mutt that speaks. We're bagging all the killer cats and all the antlered freaks. What started this dislike of shapeshifters all of a sudden, Dolly said. Well, no one's ever liked them. I don't see why. They're just another form of magicker. Nick glanced up at her again. That's not true. They've told us for years that they're just people who change. But anyone who's met a shifter can see they're more like jumped up animals. You can't trust an animal. And they fought against us in Germany. There were wolves in the American army and the British army, Dolly said. They risked wounds and even sacrificed themselves to save their fellow soldiers. They just didn't get medals at the end of it like others did. How could that be, Dolly? Fiona said. They wouldn't fight against their own kind. They didn't. They were Americans, Dolly said. <laughs> Nick shook his head. You've been sold a bill of goods, Dolly. They never fought on our side. Clannish, they are. No more so than in many others. Look at the magical families. But Dolly, they're dangerous. Look at that woman in the market, Fiona said. I think that poor girl was probably crazy before she shifted, and she'd have run just as mad in human form. <laughs> yes, but she broke a man's arm. It was Dolly's turn to shrug. Well, I'm just glad there aren't any in our neighborhood, Fiona said, putting the rose back in the vase. Yes, thank goodness. Fiona gave Dolly a sidelong glance and frowned, but didn't say anything more. And then this is the opening of chapter four. Hmm. Fiona took to the hotel manager at once, and soon the three of them, having inspected the ballroom, were studying menus and tasting samples brought out from the kitchen, preceded by the sense of bacon, chicken, brandy, and beef. Hmm. Shim suppressed the appetite, but Fiona's was fully back now, and she nibbled with obvious enjoyment. After a second taste of the tender squab Veronique, Fiona looked away, smiling in an embarrassed manner. Excuse me just a moment, she said. She hurried from the room. When she didn't return, Dolly excused herself too. She admired the lobby as she walked through it with its glittering chandeliers and the shining filigree work along the mezzanine railing. Outside, parked diagonally across Fifth Avenue, sat a black sedan with the outline of a gold shield on its door. Dolly looked from side to side and spotted the mouth of an alley close to Seneca Street. Fiona was there, twined around a man. 
<laughs> Dolly stopped, feeling the instinctual pinch in her gut at the sight of his blue uniform. Fiona's fingers were wound through his black hair, and her face was tipped up against his as if she were drinking nectar pouring from a flower. <laughs> from the hips down, their body joined like one. Dolly took her time approaching them. Don't you have menus to be studying? They untwined with a jerk. Fiona blinked as if she were drunk. The man turned half away from them, adjusting the waistband of his uniform trousers. He was tall and wide-shouldered, with a narrow waist. Fiona said, Dolly, this is... I know who this is. Go back inside. Hmm. He turned now to face Dolly and put out his hand. Miss White, I'm Robert Laughlin. You're the one who's gotten Fiona in a lot of trouble, Dolly said. She did not take his hand. <laughs> Apart, even now, their bodies leaned towards each other like strands of underwater kelp. Just one more minute, Dolly, please, Fiona said. If your father gets wind of this, you'll be on an island in the middle of Puget Sound until your wedding, Dolly said. Go. <laughs> Go, darling, Robert whispered. Fiona bit her lower lip. She pressed her hand against Robert's cheek and stepped away from him. Before she was out of reach, he grasped her hand tenderly and kissed the tips of her fingers. Oh, for crying out loud, Dolly said. You two aren't star-crossed lovers in a movie. Fiona ran past her, her cheeks bright pink. And I think we'll leave it at that. <sighs> that was delightful, Marion. <laughs> I do like subverting certain expectations. Mm-hmm. I should also say that just, like, from the opening, the vibes were impeccable. Oh, good, because that's, yeah, trying to have it read like a 1929 novel is part of my, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I'm working on. So, yeah, thank you. Well, absolutely. I think that uh, I certainly just made a new space in my TBR for this book, so. Oh, Oh, thank you. Of course. It's one of the hardest things about being the host of this show is that my TBR grows at an alarming rate. I believe it. So, uh, you know, we've, we've highlighted some just truly choice bits from the opening of this book. Do you have any favorite bits that our readers aren't going to get to experience because they had to be left out. Yes. Um, as the story continues, we meet Violet Solomon, who is the loathsome woman who runs the speakeasy, and mm. her brother, who is a shapeshifter. And uh, I had written quite a bit about their um, childhoods and young adulthoods in St. Augustine before they came to Seattle. Mm -hmm. And how they ended up the way how they ended up with her running a speakeasy instead of doing something perhaps more law abiding. Uh, it needed to be in there, but because this was a novella, it was uh, creating a length problem. And the story is told in a nonlinear way, mm. and keeping it keeping Violet's story and Philippe's story in 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 scenes meant that I was adding yet another timeline, and it just got it was just too cumbersome oh, so yeah. almost all of that got summarized but there were two or three scenes from that that i just really enjoyed oh nice well you know we know now and all our listeners know that there is additional lore <laughs> and maybe yes. someday uh deleted scenes or something else there will be uh, some way for that to get out there might be you never know <laughs> i mean you know i guess it depends a little bit on how this sells Yes, I, I think it depends a lot on how this sells. 
listeners, you have your orders. <laughs> um, so uh, with with all that in mind, do you have any favorite bits that you're just so glad you got to keep in, keeping aside that we don't want to spoil anything too badly? Right. Uh, the whole book sort of technically, because I did have to use a nonlinear, um, I didn't have to use, I chose to tell the story in a nonlinear fashion, mm-hmm. required um, some technical manipulation. So um, I use the analogy that there are people who are cooks and people who are bakers and, mm-hmm. and cooks tend to be about flavors and rela- and textures and color and relationships and bakers are about precision Mm-hmm. And I am by inclination a cook, and I had to be a baker. Oh yeah. Um, and I think I did that. I did have one that I missed, and my editor missed it too. But our keen-eyed copy editor, <laughs> so yay, copy editors everywhere, uh, caught it, and I was able to fix it in the final draft. There's also a sequence a little later in the book where um, Dolly meets somebody who has something he wants her to see, and he takes her to a warehouse on the waterfront. Mm -hmm. And there's something in the warehouse that's very important to the story. And I wanted the scene to feel a bit otherworldly in contrast to this fairly concrete world that I've tried to create. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the pacing to be different. And it, when I was writing it, it was a scene where I think I spent an inordinate amount of time staring out the window, mm. you know, because it was more internal. And I'm very happy with what got put on the page. Oh, fantastic. So that's a bit that's in there that I'm really proud of. That's awesome. Uh, I What you said about getting to, like, play around and really challenge yourself to be a baker rather than a cook... Uh, just made me think about how much how much I love novellas and novelettes like the the compressed format mm-hmm. both uh, provides a really great challenge to us as writers and also just like there's so much more like fun experimentation going on in that space I feel like uh, a lot especially because novellas have been getting you know really a lot more uh, spotlight put the, put on them recently? Yeah. I think it's kind of a golden age for novellas, especially in speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, th- I think a lot of that is due to Tor.com, uh, which, uh, but I'm, I'm very happy to see that uh, other markets are getting in on yes. the novella space now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, certainly... Yeah, I'm... Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Please go on. Uh, I was just going to say, certainly uh, a lot of the smaller presses have been, I think that, you know, novellas are a lot more approachable for a small press just because of Mm -hmm. the scale. But uh, our friends at Queen of Swords and, of course, Neon Hemlock have been, you know, making quite a dent in that space and earning some spots on the novella ballots this year uh, in the Hugo Awards, too, so... I, I was really happy to see Premi Muhammad on there with um, a couple of hers. Um, Neon Hemlock was new to me this year, and I'm so glad I was introduced to them. They were they're the other one so I was going to mention. Yeah, they're doing great stuff. I mean, I, I've got to be, I obviously I love Tor.com. I think they're mm-hmm. wonderful. They're awesome. But I'm glad to see um, the others out there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been 
uh, I've been friends with Primi for years and years now and, you know, following her career from afar even before then. And it's so, so wonderful to see that recognition coming out and to see, I think this was the second or third year of uh, Neon Hemlock's novella series that, that this book came out of. So, yeah. yeah I think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, she's just flipping awesome as a writer. She's amazing to me and um, so approachable. And she works full time for the government. I don't know how she does it. (laughs) I can barely manage to put out a podcast and work full time. I have no idea how authors are doing it. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. I really it's I'm in awe of her. Mm hmm. Shouts to Preemie. So we've talked about some of the things that didn't make it into this book, and we talked about some of the things that did make it into this book, and I'm hyped about all of them. I'm wondering if you can uh, tell our listeners a couple of things that you're super excited about that you've been reading or listening to or watching recently, uh, just because I'd love to provide this space to, you know, hype up books, movies, whatever, whether they're, you know, super mainstream and that's just the thing you want to shout about, or if it's something that's a bit more off the beaten path. Um, I love when other people are asked this question and they answer it. And every time I get asked it, I immediately go blank. I, what I'm reading right now that I, I did not realize was a You Can't Put It Down book mm-hmm. <clears throat> is, um, is a couple of years old, and it's The Poppy War oh, by R.F. Yeah. Huang. Um, and it, it, it's just uh, gripping. And it's been a situation where a number of things I, you know, I had on my to-do list, uh, you know, it's kind of like, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Can't you see I'm reading this book? Um, so that one kind of stands out for me. I read Charlie Jane Anders' second book in her YA trilogy. Oh, yeah. Um, Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. I always f- flip the title, so I have to be careful. Um, Anders does such amazing things with character. I do not know how she does it. And these young people who are, it's total, oh, you probably know, it's total mm-hmm. space opera. They've literally been sucked up off of Earth into on these space portals um, and brought into a different galaxy. And they're trying to literally save the universe. And they're teenagers. And they read like real people with real relationship problems who are also trying to save the universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, I was very impressed with the first one and I was just riveted by the second one, which I finished, um, I guess last week sometime. So I'd highly recommend that. Yeah. I've, uh, I am constantly in awe of Charlie Jane. She's fantastic and also makes a great podcast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, their opinions are correct. So, yeah. Uh, Big shouts to Our Opinions Are Correct and uh, also to Be the Serpent on the uh, Hugo Ballot that just came out a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Marion, do you have anything else coming out that you're excited to pump up for people? Um, I have a book coming out from Falstaff Books. Another Mm -hmm. shout out, a great indie press, wonderful people to work with. It's the third book of a trilogy. 
And the title is Golden Rifts, which I have to spell because it's hard to say. R-I-F-T-S. Mm-hmm. In keeping with the metallic theme of the trilogy, the trilogy is the first book's Aluminum Leaves, which interestingly enough is a novella. The oh, second nice. book is, Cop- is Copper Road, and the third one is Golden Rifts. And it comes out May 19th. Fantastic. Well, uh, links to those also will be in the show notes. Marion, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Before we get going, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter. It's Marion D underscore D. Um, I have a Facebook page and I have a blog called, <clears throat> excuse me, deedsandwords.com. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, I review for fantasyliterature.com. Fantastic. Can you give us a brief, uh, a brief pump up about fantasyliterature.com because I uh, I'm have been a follower for years and years now, but uh, some of our listeners might not know it yet. So fantasyliterature.com, I was surprised. Kat just sent us an email, and it's approaching its 15th year. So oh my it's going to have a birthday. Soon it will be driving, and then it's going away to college. Oh, no. <laughs> um, um, a lot of reviews, a lot of a variety of opinions. So we try to review a lot of new releases. Mm-hmm. We try to review the the noteworthy um, and buzzworthy books. And we have a person named Sandy who reviews Radium Age and um, Golden Age science fiction. That is Very his cool. niche. And so if he's reviewing something that was written after 1954, I'm immediately suspicious that it's not really <laughs> Sandy. Um, we have columns, sort of general interest columns. Cat just has, Cat's our editor-in-chief, just has a commitment to providing thoughtful reviews. And the slogan is, um, you know, life's too short to read bad books. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is to let people know what books are entertaining and positive and thought-provoking. Fantastic. Uh, and I should say that... Uh... At least in the past, I know that friend of the show, Kate Leckler, has also been a contributor. Yes. Kate was a contributor. Um, Alex Harrow was briefly um, passed through. So, um, and and many others. People, it's an interesting, fairly good-sized group of people. And because of that, people can drop out and drop back in. Mm-hmm. It doesn't put as much pressure on, you know, it's not a, it's not a core of two people trying to write a new review every day of the week. Right. So that's been nice. But yeah, Kate. Kate's awesome. Kate is and... awesome. And I've heard of this author, Marion Deeds. She <laughs> writes for... I've heard of her. <laughs> yes. Yes, she does. <laughs> well, Marion, thank you again so, so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at HB If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, 
don't self-reject.